Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives we're consumed by all the what if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun if you're like us then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass or play call each week on alternate routes we'll take a flashpoint in sports break down what actually happened then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused follow alternate routes on the wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts you can listen early and ad free right now by joining wondery plus it's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Hi, everybody. If you're not depressed that the Philadelphia Phillies won the National League pennant, well, pull up a chair because this edition of Rico Bronia will bring a tear to your eye. And not a good tear, not a happy tear, a sad tear. But I did think that this discussion, this podcast was necessary because the New York Mets concluded the 2022 season with something that doesn't happen all that often, and that is losing your final game of a season and that loss being the thing that ends your year. This is a franchise that's been around since 1962, but that has only happened 11 times. Now, most of the time that happens in the playoffs, you lose a series, whether it's the World Series or the NLCS, or in this case, a wild card series, that loss sends you home. But there have been a few occasions, as you may recall, where the last game of the regular season ended the Mets' season. So in totality, it's happened 11 times. And today on Rico Bronia, we go through all of them. Because, hey, if you're sad about baseball, why not get sadder? Uh, I didn't look at a lot of the tweets I got back when I brought this up and said, hey, of the 11 times the Mets' season ended, on the final day of the season, whether in the playoffs or the regular season, which one was the worst or which one's the most painful. I did see quite a few responses that said, hey, Evan, why are you trying to ruin my Saturday morning? I did get a lot of that. And I understand. I apologize. Sometimes thinking about your most painful sports memories is actually cathartic. And maybe by the end of this podcast, you'll feel less depressed about what we saw a few weeks ago to conclude the 2022 season. Or maybe you won't. Maybe you'll be more depressed. I can't guarantee anything, but 
I will lay it out this way. It's happened 11 times. Nine of those times were in my lifetime. There are two occasions that occurred, one before I was even born and one when I was too young to fully understand baseball. I don't want to ignore those moments in Met history, but I want to acknowledge that I never thought it was fair for me to rank them because I'd only be talking about them in the context of history and not in the context of how I personally felt. Now, obviously, you may be listening. You may be 30 years old. You may not remember some of the ones I'm going to bring up from the late 90s. Totally understand. So you'll get to experience it through the eyes of me, Pete Hoffman, and maybe many on Twitter. But I do want to acknowledge that history matters. And the New York Mets did lose a Game 7 of the World Series in 1973. It's a game I went back and watched during the pandemic. And here's the ultimate first guess. Is it considered a first guess if I'm criticizing something many, many years after it happened? I'm not sure. But I watched the game during the pandemic. And obviously, I know about the controversy. So this is for our older listeners. And for those that aren't aware of it, I'll give you an explanation. The Mets snuck into the postseason with fewer wins that year than even the Philadelphia Phillies this year. The Phillies won 87 games this year. The New York Mets in 1973 won fewer than that. In fact, they won five fewer than that. But they happen to win the National League East on the last day of the season. So it's the opposite of this podcast. Uh, And then they played a dynasty, or at least a burgeoning dynasty in the big red machine Cincinnati Reds. They were huge underdogs. And they beat them. They beat them in five. Then they took on a real living, breathing dynasty in the Oakland Athletics who would be in the midst of their three-peat of winning world championships. So obviously the Mets, only four years removed from winning their first World Series in 1969, they were going up against teams far superior to them. But they did go back to Oakland needing one win to win a championship. They went back to Oakland, much like the Knicks went back to Houston in 1994, only needing to win once, much like the Yankees went back to Houston in 2017, just needing to win once, much like the Red Sox came back to Shea Stadium in 1986, just needing to win once. And Yogi Berra made a controversial decision. He decided to pitch Tom Seaver in game six instead of George Stone, and that left John Matlack pitching game seven against the ace. So here's my ultimate first or second guess. The Mets were losing that game by three runs, and they had the tying run at the plate in the top of the ninth inning, and the batter was Wayne Garrett. Now, the Mets were a light-hitting team, but they had a guy on their bench who had not played in a couple of days. You may have heard of him. His name was Willie Mays. And even though Willie Mays was cooked, I admit that, I say this many years later, you're in Oakland, right? You know, a stone's throw away from San Francisco. You have the greatest living player in the history of your sport on your bench. Wayne Garrett ain't going to confuse anybody with Ty Cobb. The tying runs at the plate. Wouldn't you think maybe Willie Mays has one piece of magic left in his bat? So that's my first guess. Willie Mays was not sent up as a pinch hitter. Wayne Garrett popped up. The Mets lost game seven of the World Series. I know for a lot of older Mets fans, that one's painful, but I heard this from... My dad, and I think Howie Rose may have mentioned this too, they were such underdogs. And while it's a tough World Series to lose, they also had won four years earlier. So I assume in theory that makes it a little bit easier. But look, they did end their season by losing Game 7 of the World Series. There's no other game on this list that's going to match that. There's a couple of Game 5s of the World Series 
There's a couple of game sevens of the NLCS, but there's no game seven of the World Series. The other one I don't recall, I was only five, was game seven of the 88 NLCS, in which they got blown out. Ronnie Darling got bombed in game seven after the Mets had won a game six in LA. The series had really turned on the Mike Sosha home run in game four. Then they lost game five. They went back to LA down 3-2. And we always hear about the Mets own them in the regular season. Look, I think we've learned as fans over the years, what the hell does that mean? Owning a team in the regular season doesn't mean a damn thing. What bothers me looking back on that, and the same goes for 86, is that the Mets had a better record than the Dodgers in 1988 by about six games. They had a better record by far than the Astros in 86, yet they didn't have home field advantage in the league championship series. And I guess what they did back then, how effed up is this, is they alternated based on division, much like they used to alternate World Series home home field advantage by league, they would alternate home field advantage in the LCS by effing division. How does that make any goddamn sense? Does that change the results of the 88 NLCS? I'm not saying it does. I, I have no idea if it does. And then do they beat the A's in the World Series? I have no idea. But I know that that doesn't make sense. So they ended up getting blown out. And uh, one comparison I heard, I know Beningo said this, uh, to me personally, and I, I think he said it on the air with Tiki and Tierney, Hoffman would be able to tell you, that the way this season ended in 2022, the slow death of Game 3 against Joe Musgrove, had similarities to the way the Mets lost Game 7 of the Dodgers, where the game was never in doubt. You know, Oral Hershiser was dominating. The Mets gave up a bunch of runs early. There was no question they were going to lose that game. But I also wonder, and this is why I'm not ranking it, I'm commenting on it, it was two years removed from winning a World Series. Winning a World Series is foreign to me. It's foreign to Hoffman. And I would say it's foreign to about 70% of the audience. If you're under the age of 40, you don't know what it's like to win a World Series. So I always wondered, I know Joe Beningo would disagree with me, but I've always wondered, does winning the World Series two years earlier make it a tad easier to deal with? A tad? I don't know. So I wanted to put those two games I wanted to give him credit. I wanted to mention it. I want to comment on it, at least my perspective from a historical standpoint, but I am not going to rank them in the nine other games that closed out the Mets season because I didn't get to experience it. Though, Hoffman, you're really old. You don't remember 1988? Were you too young for that? No, I was too young. I was, first of all, really old. I'm a year older than you, dude. I'm, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I know you're still in the 30s. I know it's nice. You look a little bit younger. You have less gray hair than I do, but... Uh, no, I do not remember 88 that way. Not not in that way. Was there a lot like, of, because I went through some of the responses we got to that tweet about these 11 losses. Was there a lot of 88 and 73 mixed in there? 88 more than 73. A lot of people, like some people like, wow, I was there for 73. It was gut-wrenching. Um, a lot more of 88, again, focused on the social game, the social home run in game four. Uh, that really kind of just kind of started the trend of that like, the series was basically over after that. Um, but the 88 had a lot of mentions. I don't think it was the lead, though. I think there's one game, one one specific game that was what led the charge. Well, yes, and I, and I think that's very obvious. Howie Rose, the great Howie Rose, responded to this tweet, and I thought he did it in a very, I guess, well-representative way of the way a lot of Met fans feel, and that's, quote, here are my top three. 2006, 2006, and 2006. And he did mention 1988 gets honorable mention. Uh, 
Okay, so I think we should start with 2006. It is number one on my list. I think it's number one on most people's list. I assume, Pete, it's number one on your list, the pain of losing in 2006. I We could disagree about it in a second. Let's go down the road, but it's number two on my list. Interesting. Okay, so yeah. we may end up in the same place on this. It wasn't number one on my list till recently. And the reason I say that is I believe that sometimes the way you view games and the way you view losses and even wins can change. Uh, and I give you the, the best example I can come up with, and it's not us, but it's Red Sox fans. The way they lost game seven to the Yankees in 2003, blowing the lead with Pedro on the mound, Grady Little keeping him in too long, the bloopers in that inning, and then obviously Aaron Boone hitting the game-winning home run is as bad a loss as you could think of. But I would venture to say that a year later, that loss isn't as painful because they were able to erase it immediately by coming back on the Yankees from 3-0 down. So that's an example, an extreme example of a game in the moment, in the moment, killing your stomach and killing your soul. But then a year later, you look back on it and say, well, actually, that's pretty cool now that I think about it because maybe it led to what happened in 2004. So 2006 is the opposite for me. When I left Shea Stadium that night, and everything about that game is still very firm in my mind, uh, even something people forget, which I'll go through real quick. But when I left that building that night, I was devastated, like we all were. Uh, I was stunned, like we all were. But I was hopeful. That was the death of my hope, by the way. I walked out of Shea Stadium that night thinking, as bad as all of this is, we will be back. You know, David Wright is young. Jose Reyes is young. Carlos Beltran isn't going anywhere. Maybe we discovered something with Oliver Perez and John Maine. This bullpen is awesome. Dwaner Sanchez will be back next year after the cab accident. Like, I, and I'm not saying I had a good night that night. I didn't. I was on the fan that night, one of my early FA and overnight shows. So I had to talk about it for four hours. So I'm not telling you I was like excited. I wasn't, I was depressed. We all were depressed, but I left Shea stadium in that silence, that eerie silence with a hope that we were about to see great things. And so I would be lying to you. If I said in the moment that hurt me more than, and I could, I could actually name about five games. Did that hurt me more than 2000? No, I left Shea stadium with the effing Yankees winning the world series. I mean, come on, really? I cried myself to sleep when Kenny Rogers walked Andrew Jones in 1999. When Shea Stadium closed down and the Mets are losing 162 again? Like, those moments in when it happened were worse than 2006. And that may sound sacrilegious to people saying, come on, this is game seven of the NLCS. We were the clear best team. We lost to a crappy Cardinal team. Of course, no, no. I agree with all that. But I think in those other cases, there was a depression of, we're done. And when I walked out of Shea Stadium that night, there was a seed of hope that we weren't done. And, and here's how impactful that moment is. And bear with me, because I know it's Nets related. When I left the Durant overtime game seven game, you know, the game tying three, foot on the line, air ball at the end of it, you know what happened. I was beyond depressed because I kept thinking about 06. I swear to God. It wasn't just the Nets. It wasn't just Durant. It wasn't just the injuries. It wasn't just how close they were. I couldn't shake the feeling 
of, I don't know if I'm going to be back. And that's why anyone who told me during that offseason, oh, but Kyrie, James Harden, Kevin Durant, and by the way, how prophetic was I? They weren't back. They haven't been back. But 06 stuck with me because I now know what happened. They didn't make the playoffs in 07, 08. They choked. And they never got back to the playoffs until 2015. So I agree it's number one. I'm with Howie Rose. I'm with most of the audience. But it's different because it wasn't number one, let's say, nine years ago. It's gotten worse as time has gone on. This is the kind of game I get more angry about as time moves away. Every time the Andy Chavez's catch is shown, I get pissed off. By the way, the, the quick uh, caveat from that game that people forget. So it's game seven of the NLCS. Oliver Perez is pitching on three days rest. He had like a six ERA during the regular season. We have no faith in Oliver Perez, but they have no other option. They had no one else to pitch. It was long before the days of the opener. So they couldn't just say, hey, um, let's start Darren Oliver and, and do a bullpen day. Like that wasn't, we should have, but that wasn't an option. In the first inning with two outs and nobody on, Albert Pujols had a pop-up to first base. And Carlos Delgado dropped it. And I never forget, that moment I was like, we're dead. Like, holy crap, he just dropped a pop-up. And then Oliver Perez, cool, calm customer that he was, I got the final out of the first inning. Mets scored a run in the bottom of the first inning against that piece of crap, Jeff Supan, who still haunts my dreams. Uh, then the Cardinals quickly tied the game, and then we're stuck in this 1-1 dogfight until obviously Yachty hits the two-run home run. And uh, still bothers me that Billy Wagner didn't come out for the ninth inning because Aaron Hammond pitched a clean eighth, and we didn't trust Billy Wagner in a tie game at home. Why else wasn't he pitching? We kept thinking about game two, and so Taguchi. So there's a lot of aspects of this game that was painful. And then just the shock of Beltron striking out and the Reyes line drive off the bat, I thought was going to split the alley. And then there there's Jim Edmonds showing up to Willie Randolph going for it all with Cliff Floyd when he probably should have sent up Tom Glavin to just lay down a bunt second and third one out top of the order. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a tough one. And so even when you think about all those moments, I think it only reaffirms that it is the number one to me worst ending to a season in the history of this franchise. So the that whole series, the confidence level going into that game seven, I think I told you the story once. I, do, I used to work K-Rock, so I told you I worked with Tom Chiasano, who was the GM for Howard Stern. If anybody remembers Howard Stern, I've never right. remembered Howard Stern, but for K-Rock days, Tom Chiasano was a GM. And he asked me, he's like, listen, Pete, because Chia Sano's a big Mets fan too. He goes, at the, this point in time, we're promoting our new station. It's it's uh, Great Rock Period or Free FM, whatever it is. It's Free FM, it is actually 2006, obviously. He's like, we have X amount of money left for this budget for the rest of this year. We could put it towards the TV and put a nice promo right after the Yankee uh, Mets game, game seven. What do you think? But then we're done with, with, with money the rest of the year. I go, Tom, we're winning. There's no doubt. Put it up there. Everyone's going to see it. I'm going to see it. It's going to be awesome. Let's freaking go. And the moment Beltran struck out, I walked out of where I was. I never looked back at the TV. I have no idea if the promo even ran. And all I thought about was, wow, I screwed Tom. I mean, on top of the fact that we screwed each other. But, like, I was so like, – I, I, the thing that hurts about this game, and still, it for me, it's not the number one, but it's second because – where I feel like the Mets could have gone 
if they made it to the World Series, I think they would have easily beaten the Detroit Tigers and led to a, a World Series, which is what the, the Cardinals ended up getting. And that's kind of where it's like it, you you feel like this team had more to give. And that's why it hurt so much. The way it ended, it was it was devastating. Yeah, I, I think there's a, a belief amongst all of us, right or wrong, because there's no way to prove it, that we were going to win the World Series. That you win that game, Beltron splits the alley, and we win that game, we're smoking the Detroit Tigers. And look, who the hell knows? I mean, we we could assume it. I know the Tigers kind of fell victim to what the Mets fell victim to in 2015 of having too much off time before a World Series started. But it's not just that. It's also, you say, what it could have led to. I kind of think we don't collapse in 07. We don't collapse in 08. That the DNA of this team maybe is different. That a defending world champion that just you know, accomplished as much as they did in 2006 doesn't collapse down the stretch of the season in 2007. So I'm not telling you they're a dynasty. I think that's going too far. But are they a perennial playoff team for a bunch of years? And maybe we view things differently. I I don't think that's crazy to say because that loss in a lot of ways is more than just that season. It's what it led to. And how rotten that team turned out to be, which is crazy because we all love that team in 2006. Everybody was head over heels in love with that team. But by the middle of 07, or really the middle of 08, and Willie Randolph's fired, everybody started hating the team. And people started hating everybody. I hate Delgado. I don't like Reyes. David Wright, I guess, always seemed to be above it. But we turned on them. And look, rightfully so, considering the results of what happened the next few years. But I think this game gets worse as time goes on because of what's happened since. What happened to the team in the immediate aftermath of that season? And obviously just not winning anything. I mean, yeah, they went to the World Series in 2015, and that's great. But there hasn't been a championship. And 2006 may be the biggest what if. Maybe even more so than 88. Because, look, I know the Mets owned the Dodgers in 88. When you look at the final standings, the Mets were six games better. The Dodgers didn't win 82 games. It was six games better. The Cardinals sucked. The, the Mets were how many games better? 17 games better? 15 games better? Something absurd. Like, the Mets were so far and away the best team in the National League that year. By a lot. To walk away with nothing. Devastating. Well, didn't the Cardinals, like, they limped into the playoffs. They won their division. They were, what, two games over 500? I think they won 83 games that year, whatever the number was. Yeah, 83, 83, and, uh... 83 and 81. And yeah, they got they got lucky to get into that spot. And that, right, you're 100% right. That's what pissed me off. It's like, this is an easy, this should be an easy series. This should be an easy win. And nothing is easy in life. And they blew it multiple times. More than just this game seven. They blew game two, obviously. 83 and 78 officially, by the way. Um, they blew game two. I'm still pissed at Tommy Glavin for basically blowing game five, two, two, even series. The Mets handed him a lead. He couldn't wait to give it back. And then obviously everything that happened in game seven, Andy makes the incredible catch. Scott Rowland, the next inning makes an error. Scott Rowland, the greatest defensive third baseman of our generation makes a brutal error to set up second and third and one out and they can't score. Because Valentin is striking out on pitching the dirt, and Indy Chavez is hitting a weak fly ball to center field. So, so many aspects of it. One last thing before we move on to other games, because we could do a whole podcast about this game. 
I talk about what it led to for the Mets and the depression of what it led to for us. It led to a Hall of Fame career and a borderline Hall of Fame career. Yadier Molina was a 212 hitting catcher at the time. Like, if you remember who he was in that moment, he was an obscure, young, light hitting catcher. He wasn't a household name at that point. That home run certainly helped elevate him and then put together a great career. I've got nothing but respect for the baseball player that is Yadi Molina. To me, he's a Hall of Famer. Adam Wainwright, let's get to him. Adam Wainwright is a minor league prospect. They acquired him from Atlanta. I think it was for J.D. Drew, if I'm not mistaken. And he was filling in at closer because Jason Isringhausen got hurt. So instead of Wainwright pitching the ninth in an alternate universe, Jason Isringhausen's pitching the ninth. And I don't know why. I just think Beltran goes deep for some reason. But Adam Wainwright is a young prospect who's thrown into the role of closing games in the playoffs. And his nasty curveball is what freezes Beltron. And then he goes on, and I don't think he's a Hall of Famer, but he goes on and has a stellar major league career. Adam Wainwright and Yadier Molina, none of that before that game. So that game elevates them, kind of pushes them in the direction of the great careers they had. So we kick it off with the main event. To me, the clear number one, and that is game number seven of the 2006 NLCS. Passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance from superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles. We win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Now, Pete Hoffman has a different number one. So the floor is yours. After you're done, I'll tell you where I rank that game because I have a ranking system. But I'm curious, if it wasn't game seven of the 2006 NLCS, what was it? It's got to be 2007. It is 2007 because, like you said, the hope was there. We were a hit away from going to the World Series. And it felt like everything and more was going to be back with 2007. That The team was there. And they were there. With 17 games left, the Mets were there. We had the division, and we should have had an easy ride. And then the collapse happened. And you talk about, in real time, a one-game 
where you're 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 pulling at your heartstrings like left and right. This was 17 games of ripping out your hair and then going to game 162 after you just had a John Main go seven two thirds, no hit ball, <laughs> you know, Reyes get into the little fight the day before, you know, it just everything was just like this doesn't feel right. Why are we messing around? Like, let's take it a little bit more serious. We get under Jimmy Rollins' skin. I think that was the start of Jimmy Rollins started like really hate New York. And it just, when Glavin gets you, and I know it just happened in one in the first inning and it was over, poof, like that. But then you had to sit there and marinate for the next eight and a half innings of like, we just not only blew the division, blew the playoffs. What are we? Like, this was a team of, of, like you said, if we were playing the Detroit Tigers, maybe win a World Series. Dynasty? Is that, we're not, we're not going to hit the playoffs? So there was a lot to deal with for 17 games and that final game, 162, it just, you got to sit there that much longer. It was, I mean, I agree with you. This was one of the worst three-hour experiences one can have because, like you said, when you give up seven runs in the top of the first inning, the game is over. Uh, they had what I remember about this, and I always think this way with baseball, whenever you give up a crooked number in the top of a first inning, I always think to myself, hey, if you could get three back right out of the game, I'd ask the whole thing back. If you can get three back in the bottom of the first inning, you have yourself a baseball game. And that's always the way I looked at it. So on this day where Tom Glavin gives up seven runs in a third of an inning, I mean, the worst performance you could ever imagine. He came into this world horribly opening day against the Cubs in 03, got booed off the mound. He leaves this world horribly getting booed off the mound, a third of an inning, seven runs. He had some good moments mixed in. Don't get me wrong. Tommy Glavin wasn't the worst met ever. He wasn't the greatest met ever, but he wasn't the worst met ever, but he couldn't have sandwiched it with two worse, more pathetic starts opening day. 03, game one sixty two oh seven. He comes out of the game. Jorge Sosa comes in. The immortal Jorge Sosa makes it worse. They're down 7 nothing, But in the bottom of the first inning, they put guys on base. And I remember thinking, this game's not over. Like, as bad as this is, and I think at this point there was still a little bit of trust for this team because even though they had blown the lead, you know, they had come back, like you mentioned, the day before with the John Mayne performance. There was still that hope that they'd find a way. And they got a run back on a wild pitch and it was seven one with bases loaded and two outs and the batter hit one to the warning track. And that batter was Ramon Castro and it was caught by the left fielder and that was it. And then they were dead. <laughs> I mean, cause, cause then they had rallies. Don't get me wrong. They had guys on base, but you just knew they're dead. Like they needed. And look, Ramon Castro, it's one of the warning track that goes out at seven, five. And all of a sudden it's like, Holy crap. They'll be able to come back. But once that ball was caught, it was it was a three-hour funeral. It really was. It was a just a three-hour, I can't believe this really happened to us, conclusion of the season. And it was bad. But I'll tell you this, Pete. You have it number one on your list. I have it not even number two. Not even number three. Not even number four. The conclusion of the 2007 season on my list, everybody's different, is actually number five. There are four other games besides 2006 that I would deem 
or three other games. I'm doing my math incorrect. It's fifth. So three other games and 2006 that I would rank as worse. Uh, was there a wow. lot of tweets about 2007? Was that another popular pick amongst our peoples? I, I, I think it goes, if I'm correct, 2006, not 88. And then I think 07 is the third. I, that's what I got the feeling. You know, again, some 73s in there. And there's one that we haven't discussed yet that that's kind of in there too, but not as much as I thought thought it should be. And I think that's what, that's going to be top four for you. Well, I want to connect it then because I'm going to give you the, the, the game that to me is number four on the list. But, so it's slightly ahead of 2007. But to me, in the moment, may have been one of the worst losses of all time. And I think as time has gone by, and I've had more time to think about it and digest it. I've moved it down a little bit because it was still just the regular season. And that was the following season, 2008, the closing of Shea Stadium in game 162. I would argue with you about this. No, I mean, argue. It's our own emotion. So there really is no argument. I think 2008 was far worse than 2007. I really do. I think it was worse. I think it was worse in the moment. I think it's worse now, all these years later. Uh, the games are completely different. But I, I'll never forget the feeling of they're doing this again. Like, how is this effing possible that everything to the letter is occurring the same way? Lose on a Friday night to the Marlins, win some kind of crazy, amazing, awesome pitching performance on Saturday to then lose game 162 to the Marlins. And then you top it all off with the closing of Shea Stadium. And a lot of people to this day give the Mets crap for what they did, and how could you close Shea Stadium after a loss? Just hear me out on this. It sucked. I cried that entire time, the combination of sadness and the combination of nostalgia. But if they had won that game, if Scott Schoenweiss isn't giving up back-to-back home runs to freaking Wes Helms and Josh Willingham, and the Mets win that game, don't you think the timing of the ceremony is the most ridiculously awesome thing you've ever seen? Oh, that would have been better than a World Not I can't say that better than a World Series, but better than making a World Series run. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, because you have to think about the the, the making the playoffs, victory, get, clinching the playoff spot, and closing the stadium or closing the regular season. I mean that 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 is epic. So they lose, and now we're all stuck there, like in a jail cell, <laughs> to watch this ceremony while we're bemoaning the fact that the team lost. Yes, it's awful. It worked out terribly. If they do it pregame, like, because I heard people, ah, do it pregame. I don't think it has the same effect pregame because you're not closing the stay of the game. The game's about to occur. So I think it was just a gamble that the Mets took that backfired a major way because of the fact they lost the game. But if they win the game, no one would have wanted to have left anyway. It would have been like, this is great. Let's party. Ah, it's fantastic. So I think the Mets and the Wilpons, because the Wilpons get heat for this, and I'll give the Wilpons a ton of heat. How about the fact that their parting gift to us was not re-signing Zach Wheeler? Let's start with that mm. gift. And now we're watching his ass dance in the World Series. But mm. I always thought that the Mets get too much crap for that. It sucked. Don't get me wrong. I just try to be fair and say it could have been amazing if they won. Now, the game itself was just... That was another one of those games where it isn't a slow death because they definitely had a chance to win. But there's a moment in this game that bothers me because no one remembers it and they only remember the bad. And it's not his fault they lost this game. And it's not his fault that the team choked, essentially. 
though this season wasn't as much of a choke as it was just losing a pennant race. But the New York Mets are down 2 nothing in this game. Oliver Perez started the game for the Mets that day, and he gave up two runs in the sixth inning. So the Mets are down 2 nothing. It's the bottom of the sixth inning, and now we're all fearful. Oh, my God, they're going to lose. They're going to miss the playoffs again. And just for the record, if the Mets had won this game, there would have been a play-in game to make the playoffs. So they would have not been guaranteed a playoff spot. Uh, they were tied with the Milwaukee Brewers for the wild card spot at the time. There was only one wild card. And the Brewers won that game. I think CC Sabathia pitched. So if the Mets had won, there would have been a one-game playoff with the Brewers. They were not automatically into the postseason. And by the way, in 07, there would have been a three-way tie for a wild card and the division. So it would have been nuts, but that's a little bit different. Just perspective on it. So they're down 2 nothing, bottom of the sixth inning. And here comes that guy. That guy who is treated as a pariah. That guy who is considered not clutch because of one at-bat. But in my, my money was the most clutch met during that era. And that's Carlos Beltran, who hits a game-tying two-run home run in the sixth inning to make it 2-2. And I turned to my dad after he hit that home run, and I said, they may end up building a statue for this guy. My famous last words. Now, not Carlos's fault because he had a home run. And I think in his next that bad drew a walk. So it's not as if he contributed in any major way to them losing this game. But the Mets offense did nothing. Scott Schoenweiss gives up those back-to-back home runs in the eighth inning. Tip your waitress. The freaking season is over. But it's forgotten about. Now, for any Met fan who to this day says Beltron never got a big hit, Either you're a liar or you're an idiot because he got a ton of big hits. We just don't remember them sometimes. And that two-run home run that he hit against Scott Olson and the Marlins in game 162-2008 counts. But I thought that game was worse than 07. Not just closing Shea Stadium. Obviously, it wasn't the same collapse as 07, no doubt. The collapse 07 was worse 08 was more, they lost a pennant race and they had no relievers left by the end of the year. But there was so much deja vu, so much, they can't be doing this again. This can't be happening again. And the whole freaking weekend was that. So in the moment, the devastation of watching Shea Stadium close down and watching the Mets collapse again, I tell you, in the moment, that was as bad as it gets. So this is why I I, don't, I didn't put uh, 2000 eight is high. Let me so double check where I put it at. I put 08 to be honest with you at because 73 and 80 like you did. I, I didn't really count. So um I put it at seven. Because I think for me it I, I'm not trying to be a bitter person or this pessimist, but I just felt it coming. Like even <laughs> though with yo even with Johan being the stud that he was, I just felt like we were something short. And I, I felt like we already started getting a little like tired of like a Carlos Delgado wasn't really into it as much. I'm not sure if that was the year he put away his notebook. Remember when he stopped writing it? His, he would log every single at right. bat. He stopped logging at bats at one point. That with the Mets, I'm like, oh, this is this is definitely not a good sign. Um, I think our catcher wasn't Laduke anymore. It was like what Brian like, Schneider. Um, yeah, he sucked. So there was already things. I'm like, we're 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 like we're not upgrading anymore. We're just kind of like trying to stay pat. That wasn't good enough, and so I kind of already felt like this is not the same team that's going to get us where we want to be. So I kind of accepted it earlier, and the fact that we were in it so long and collapsed the same way, yeah, it hurt. 
And right, listen, no one's going to take away the fact that we're closing down Shea Stadium in that that form. It was terrible, but I, I think I had already lost it <laughs> well before 162. I get you. I, don't know, you may, I totally get where you're coming from. I don't feel the same way, but I totally get it. So for me, I had 2006 number one. I just gave you 08 was four, 07 was five. Let me get to two and three on my list because they were interchangeable. Uh, I had a really difficult time because they're so similar. They're, they're, you know, we talk about 07 and 08 being similar in terms of game 162 against the Marlins, not making the playoffs, all that. These two, I can't get over the similarities. And after game one of the 2015 World Series, I knew, I said, this is, we just blew a game in the ninth inning. We lost in extra innings. Oh my God, where have I seen this before? And everything about the loss in 2015 reeked of 2000. Now, there's one huge difference, which a lot of people want to remind me of, and that is you lost to the Royals. You don't know any Royal fans as compared to losing to the Yankees. And obviously, I get that. And that's the tiebreaker. And that's, to me, why 2000 gets the number two slot and 2015 gets the number three slot because there's no other way to break that tie. I would say that, the older I've gotten, the more they actually hurt, which is weird because I also could take a step back and realize it's just sports. I'm lucky. I have a great family. I love my wife. I love my kids. So obviously it's easier, I think, when you're an adult to realize it's just sports. As much as we love it, we're passionate about it, we talk about it, uh, you know, you get health scares. It just reminds you that all this stuff is the toy store. This is the stuff that matters. And so that helps in a major way remind you how really what sports is. But I also think as you get older, you start to think to yourself, I'm never going to see my team win. Like the more time that goes by, you, you kind of think there's no guarantee. And so I think in 2000, when I'm at the age of 17 at the time, as bad as it is, there's hope of, I got a lot of time. I'll see him win eventually. When you lose in 2015 and you're 32 years old, it's a little bit different. There's a little bit of, I don't know, man. I don't know if I'm ever going to see this team in the World Series again. So I think from that perspective, 2015 is worse. But the tiebreaker is that when the New York Mets lost game five of the 2000 World Series, which is a bad loss no matter how you cut it, okay? That could be a regular season game, and the way you lose that game is brutal. You know, Al Leiter is basically leaving his soul on the mound, pitching into the ninth inning, uh, the Mets had an early lead. The Yankees tied it in the sixth on a home run by Derek Jeter, that son of a bitch, to the Yankees starting a two-out rally in the ninth inning against that lighter. And Luis Soho, of all people, hits a goddamn roller that rolls 88 times before it nestles into center field. Like, that's a bad loss. And then the the moment of Piazza hits one on the screws. Is it a game-tying home run? Oh, wait, no, it's not and it's in the glove of Mariano Rivera, that's all bad. But the ultimate is leaving that building. The ultimate was, and I, I, I'm not going to do the sound again, but I did imitate the sound on Carton Roberts a few months ago of this woman who sat next to me who was a Yankee fan. And I think I can be more uh, rated R on a podcast. So if you're a child, maybe hold your ears for a second. I'm giving you this warning. The woman was orgasming, orgasming, orgasming. Is that how it's said? Orgasming. 
Yes, it's orgasming, my, my friend. Yes. I'm so real. It's like we're rookies at this. I'm so really accomplished it. <laughs> I don't know how to say it. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, so that's how it sounded. I mean, it sounded as if she was being pleasured. It was crazy. And so that sound is in my head as I'm trying to get the hell out of Shea Stadium. And Yankee fans are celebrating. And I don't, listen, I don't begrudge any Yankee fan from celebrating. You won the World Series. You won your third straight World Series. And you did it in a rival, if you want to call us a rival, you don't have to, a rival's building. So I don't begrudge any Yankee fan, but leaving that environment is the worst. Like there is no, I could, I could literally make it number one just because of that. Because when I'm leaving game seven against the Cardinals, you can hear a pin drop. When I'm leaving a few weeks ago in 2022, we're just cursing people out. But when you leave and the Yankees are celebrating a World Series in your building, and you know you got to go to school tomorrow where 80% of the kids are Yankee fans. You know what? The more I talk about it, F it. That's number one. I know there was an acceptance. Ah, they're down three games to one. The series is over. You never really thought they were going to win. But I, you know, I don't think that way. You know, I, I never, look, the Nets were just down 3-0 to the Celtics. I didn't walk into the building in game four accepting defeat. I'm I was into every second because you just hope maybe this is your year to shock the world. 2015, don't get me started about this one. 2015 game-wise was worse. Here's why it was worse game-wise. You're winning 2-0. In fact, you're winning immediately because Curtis Granderson did the Lenny Dykstra or the Jose Reyes in game six. He hit a lead-off home run which has happened a couple of times in Met history. I just told you a few of them. Len Dykstra, Jose Reyes. He hits a home run. They're up one nothing. They get another run later in the sixth inning on a Lucas Duda sack fly. And Matt Harvey is magnificent. He is magnificent. Everything you dreamt of from Matt Harvey was occurring that night. And what was really cool about Matt that night is he didn't dominate. Like maybe your memory will tell you something different, but he didn't dominate that night. He only pitched two, one, two, three innings that night, but he got himself into trouble and he would get out of trouble. He struck out the side in the fourth inning. That was a one, two, three inning. And he actually pitched a one, two, three inning in the eighth inning, which is a big part of why Matt came out for the ninth inning. Now, for anyone who was in that building with me that night, and I don't think anyone would remember sitting next to me that night, but my wife was, and my dad was, they would know that I very passionately was not a fan of Matt Harvey pitching the ninth inning. And there were a few reasons why I felt that way. I wanted to give Jairus Familia a clean inning. He had come in in the middle of an inning uh, the night before. So number one, I wanted the closer to have a clean inning. And number two, I thought we got it all from Matt. I thought he was great. And I think that was it. Now, usually I'm a guy who wants to push a starting pitcher a little bit more. At that point, He's thrown close to 100 pitches. He just finished with a one, two, three inning, maybe left empty the tank. The heart of the order is coming up. I did not want him out there. Now, when he came out there and the crowd was electric, did I join in and cheer? Of course, I'm cheering because I want him to shut me up. When he walks Lorenzo Kane, though, he has to come out of that game. I'm sorry. And that's why unforgivable is a very strong term to use. 
But I don't know, man. Terry, Terry Collins, he had his moments here, and he was the manager of a team that won a pennant, and I'll always appreciate that. And he's a good dude. I got no ill will towards Terry Collins. But that freaking move is unforgivable. I'm sorry. You cannot let him face Eric Cosmer with a runner on first and eventually a runner on second because Kane stole second base. Not that that mattered because they had a two-run lead. And by that point, and this is what killed me, Jairus Familia comes into that game, right? What does he do? Let's remember, what does Jairus Familia do now with a runner on second and nobody out with a one-run lead? He gets a ground out from Mike Moustakis. It advanced the runner, but he got a goddamn ground out. He's a ground ball pitcher. He did his freaking job. Now he's facing Salvador Perez. What'd he do? He got a ground out. He got the job done. And Duda made the terrible throw, but Familia got the job done. And then what'd he do against the next hitter? He got a ground out. And what'd he do in the 10th inning? He pitched a 1-2-3 inning. The guy did the freaking job. But because the manager left Matt Harvey in one batter or maybe two batters too long, it didn't matter that Jairus Familia did the job. And that's what pisses me off. And that's what pissed me off then. So maybe from a game standpoint, it is 2015. Because then we sit there for three death innings of just death. Because the Met offense was limp. They couldn't do a freaking thing. And we had to watch, like, surviving the 11th inning with uh, John Neese pitching and then the out-and-out implosion in the 12th inning. And that's what it was. A guy no one's ever heard of gets a game-winning hit against you, and then they pile on. Acetas Escobar gets a hit. There's another error that Lorenzo Kane double. And now I'm sitting at City Field knowing it's over, and the only people left are Royal fans. So it felt like 2000 all over again. <laughs> Wasn't quite 2000, but you know what I mean? So from a game standpoint, I mean, they're both pretty crappy losses, actually. <laughs> they're both pretty freaking so, bad. So I, I, I was not in the stadium for either of those, those games. Um, I will say I had the 2015 as my number five and the, and the Yankee series as two thousand uh, as number four, and the reason why I'll say they weren't higher. There's one other one other season that we will get into in a little bit. Um, here's my thing, though. They were in the championship. They're in. They they had an opportunity. You you know whether you blew it, whether it was home when they when they ended up losing, you felt like they had they had the opportunity, and especially 2015, you. Again, from Sandy Olson's words himself, 2015 was never supposed to be a contending team. It was 2016 and beyond. 2016 was going to be real contenders. They got lucky in 2015. And that's what sucked about 2015 is I didn't get to enjoy the ride as much because I didn't believe in this squad. And I really kind of wasn't supposed to because they always said 2016 is really we're going to make a real deep dive, <laughs> bring in some more people. And, and and take a real run for this. We're still in the rebuilding mode. So that's why when 2015 ended, I wasn't like, I was at that 2006 feel again, just without going to the World Series. We, we were in World Series in 2015, but I felt like we'd be back again. That's why but I didn't, felt like, like. Didn't 2006 teach you that lesson that you can't expect that? 
No, but it, but but that but but management was telling us that they were going to go for it in 2016 was going to be the year. So the fact that 2015 was put together and kind of like <laughs> glued together or taped together, what duct taped together, whatever you want to say, we got lucky with Cespedes. He basically carries for two months, and then Murphy carries in the playoffs. I'm like, oh my god, they're not terribly far away because they got in the freaking World Series. What are they going to do to make this team better? And the first thing they did was let Daniel Murphy go, and I go. What? But you know what? What the hell just happened? But, but, but think about this. Yes, not re-signing Daniel Murphy was a big mistake. But what really derailed that team was that they couldn't keep all their pitchers healthy and pitching effectively. But that was sure. That was the death knell because Matt Harvey was never the same after that game five. Uh, Noah Syndergaard was great in 2016, but Jacob DeGrom ended up getting hurt, so didn't pitch that right. final month. And so that rotation, which was the strength, I mean, the real reason... They made a run. Yeah, Daniel Murphy getting hot was amazing. But the real reason they made that run is they had an unreal starting rotation. And I think one thing we've learned in baseball is that, yeah, you want pitching, but relying on it is very tough. Relying on it being there is really, really tough. And that's what did that team in, that guys were unable to stay healthy. We never got to see that rotation really pitch even close to that level ever again. Which is why 2016, when it was just like, I, that's low on my list. I forget where it is. But the point in 2016, it's like, it's not comparable. You you were surprised you got in the playoffs at that point in time. And you knew you weren't going to go far because yeah. just the injuries were just devastating. Yeah, no doubt. In fact, 2016 is ninth on my list. I This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. I had a very difficult time ranking 2022. It's kind of like when people try to rank. I love ranking presidents. I love analyzing. Best presidents, worst presidents. (laughs) What I always say is, you got to leave out like the last 20 years. I know that's not fun for people because they really want to rip recent presidents and they really want to tell you a recent president's great. I'm, I know it's boring, but you can't do it. You just can't like, you have no idea. Harry Truman's the greatest example of it. Harry Truman left office and he was derided. One of the worst presidents, all the polls came out, terrible president, worst approval rating. We sit here all these years later, he's considered by many to be a top 10 president. So you see that extreme change. So when, when I'm having fun ranking presidents, I like talking about, you know, Teddy Roosevelt. I like talking about Abe Lincoln. I like ripping James Buchanan, you know, things like that. Uh, 2022 is like trying to rank George W. Bush and Barack Obama. You can't. You may want to. You may really, really want to, but you can't. Well, 2022 is like trying to rank Joe Biden because he's the current president. Like that, that's how crazy you can't do it. But I did anyway. Well, I did. You did? Where'd you put <laughs> I it? I did too. I did. <laughs> Where, where'd you put it? Okay, so 
It's kind of like where I would put any recent president. I wouldn't give him a high mark, none of them, but I wouldn't put him at the bottom. Because, like, when people say, and I'll, I'll, I'll pick the last four so that we're politically fair, if someone says Joe Biden's the worst president, Donald Trump's the worst president, Barack Obama's the worst president, George W. Bush is the worst president, they've clearly never heard of James Buchanan or Franklin Pierce. They haven't. Like, they led to a goddamn civil war, but whatever. So, 2022, it's still so fresh that I, I put it towards the bottom, but not at the bottom. I put it sixth. I have 061, 2000, number two, 2015, three, 084075. You know this because you've been scoring at home. And then I slot in 2022 as sixth on my nine season list. Three. Three. Bro. Three, and I'll tell you why. why. What other hundred plus win team didn't go to the World Series for the Mets? Well, 1988, 2022, that's the list. Right. And now I wasn't around for 88, which is why a lot of people put 88 there. So I, I, I'm not saying I wasn't around, but I don't remember it. This taste is so bitter to me right now. It's It's going to last a long time. And to watch the Padres go down, or the Padres beat the Dodgers, and then the Padres lose to the Phillies. It's like, oh my God, you're telling me the Mets couldn't have been competitive with the Dodgers? The Mets couldn't be competitive with the Phillies? I mean, we've seen what happened the regular season. It wasn't a good way to end uh, with the Phillies too, but this team had so much promise. There were so many pieces to it, and this is my big concern, and this is a bigger picture, but I'm starting to get feels of the 06, the season after. Yeah. The 2015, the season after. We're sitting here. We had last podcast, which you should go back and listen to, was all about Jacob DeGrom. Well, the more and more I think about it, the more and more he ain't coming back. That is a problem. This team is not going to be around, which is some ways good. Get rid of Darren Ruff. Get rid of some of these guys who are like, we don't we don't need this excess waste. But then the key pieces, the pieces that that even though DeGrom wasn't around all season long, was a huge factor to getting us to where we wanted to be, or, or you know, he pitched well in the well, playoffs. He may not be around. Th- that's why I put this somewhere towards the bottom, but not at the bottom, because a big part of the way I determine pain is over time, not just in the moment. Look, in the moment, I maybe nineteen ninety nine would be number one for me because I cried like a baby when Kenny Rogers walked Andrew Jones. But I, I try to have perspective on it. I think what happens next is going to play a big role in how we feel about 2022. Very similar to what I mentioned earlier about the Aaron Boone game to Red Sox fans. They went out and won the World Series the next year. So it's tough to, you know, if a Red Sox fan was doing a podcast about most painful losses, I don't know what they would do with game 703. They'd probably say, yeah, it was painful in the moment, but geez, now it's a celebration because of look what happened a year later. So I think how and what happens next will determine, at least in my eyes, and I'm pretty sure with you too, where 2022 goes. But I have it sixth on my list, which leaves us with the bottom three years. Let me go all the way to the bottom because we were just kind of touching on it. And that's 2016. While the game was brutal. I mean, they lost a 0-0 game late, essentially, as Noah Syndergaard is going toe-to-toe with one of the great clutch pitchers of all time in Madison Bumgarner. And you hate to lose a game to a Connor Gillespie home run in the ninth inning. And there were some great moments in that game. Curtis Granderson made an unbelievable game-saving catch uh, in this game, which sort of goes forgotten about. 
But I think why this ends up being maybe the least painful is something you touched on. They weren't going anywhere. Like, it would have been exciting to have a five-game series with the Chicago Cubs and throw Seth Lugo out and Bartolo Colon out in a best of five. And you never know. Clearly, this year in baseball has shown you, you never know. That 2016 team versus this Philly team, who the hell knows, right? But the reality is, in all likelihood, that Met team wasn't going anywhere. There was no Jacob DeGrom. There was no Matt Harvey at that point. It was literally a rotation of Noah Syndergaard, Portola Colon, Seth Lugo, and wait for it, Robert Gazelman. It was an offense that, in the wild card game, had TJ Rivera batting fifth had an aging Jose Reyes leading off. Like, it just wasn't a very good team. So while the loss was rough, <laughs> no doubt about that, you know, and that was the negative of Jairus Familia. You know, I put him over a lot for what he did in 2015 and how well he pitched, <clears throat> excuse me, in that game five. And obviously the six-out save against the Dodgers. That was the worst of Jairus Familia. Comes into a tie game in the ninth inning against the bottom part of the Giants order and craps the bed. Uh, I put that last. I put that as the least of the painful losses. And that gets me to seven and eight. Seven and eight features a game that's not forgotten about in Met history, a game I've referred to a few times, and then a game no one thinks about. In fact, there may be many Met fans saying, I'm confused. I counted all of the last games where the Mets got eliminated on the final game of the year, and I don't know how you get to 11 or in this case, how you get to nine. Well, that's because in 1998, the New York Mets went into game 162, one game out of a wild card spot. They were trailing the Chicago Cubs, and they were trailing the San Francisco Giants. They were in the midst of a collapse because the New York Mets went on to lose their final five games of the season. They led in the wild card race, by a half a game going into a night game against the lousy Montreal Expos and got shut out three, nothing. It was the same day. Brant Brown of the Chicago Cubs dropped a fly ball in left field and the Cubs blew a seven run lead. And so I went to Shea stadium that night thinking we're going to make the playoffs. Excuse me. The Cubs are choking. I'm choking. The Mets then lost that game, lost five straight, got swept by the Braves, including this final game of 162. Little did we know, the Cubs and Giants would lose that day. So the Mets went into game 162, a game out. If they win, they would need help. And then maybe there would be a three-way tie. They got the help. We didn't know it at the time. And the Mets got their ass kicked in this game. But the Chicago Cubs lost. The San Francisco Giants lost. And the New York Mets would have if they took advantage of this situation and didn't lose game 162 to the great Greg Maddox would have been in a three-way tie for the wild card spot. This was a non-competitive, brutal game. Armando Reynoso started for the New York Mets and got knocked out in the second inning. And he gave up five runs in an inning and two-thirds. Thankfully, Hideo Nomo came out of the bullpen and pitched four scoreless innings to at least keep the game relatively close but the New York Mets would lose this game 7-2. to two. They would close the season with five consecutive losses when all they needed to do was win one to be in a wild card play-in and win two 
if they wanted to make the playoffs. That weekend is most remembered for when Jay Payton was put in as a pinch runner in the eighth inning of the Friday night game and got thrown out by a mile and a half by Andrew Jones trying to stretch and go first to third on a base hit. The on-deck hitter at the time was Mike Piazza, and Jay Payton was thrown out as the tying run at third base in the eighth inning. It's forgotten about because, eh, 98, look what they went on and did. They had some success in 99. They won the pennant in 2000. But 1998 was a baptism by fire. That was my first pennant race, and it sucked. Any memories of 1998, Hoff? You can be honest with me if you don't. Uh, uh, that was year we got Piazza, so there was definitely memories behind it because I remember, dude, I remember, I don't know if I was there the first game, the first home game, but I was there for one of the first home games that Piazza was there. And just the buzz beyond Piazza was crazy. was crazy. It was phenomenal. So, like, yes, of course I remember that team, but I don't remember the collapse as much. But now you say the Cubs and the, the, the Giants, I do remember vividly di- diving into, like, they are that close. Because – there was a couple of years there where the Giants were always on the cusp of making it. But there was always another team that was involved, but that specifically, yeah, we, we it was. But the thing that didn't hurt so much about it was we were in a pet, we were in a race for playoffs. But me, really, I didn't know what the playoffs was. Yeah, so oh no, no, fan, I, I didn't, I didn't know. Me too. <laughs> I was like, what the hell is this? Yeah, yeah, I think it, it at the time. It was kind of cool because the Yankees had won the World Series two years earlier. Uh, as a Met fan, you know, at that age, I was 15 at the time. There was no success. You know, what the hell was our success? 1997 was sort of a Fugazi pennant race. They were never really in it. They had a good year coming out of nowhere to win 88 games. But before that, they were bad. They were just a bad, bad team. So I guess it was cool having a pennant race. And it was a real introduction to hating the Atlanta Braves. Like that really was in a lot of ways the beginning of the rivalry because Chipper Jones had a big weekend. Bobby Cox didn't hold back at all, even though they had already won the division. And I don't blame the Braves for doing that, by the way. The Braves could do whatever they want. You know, they've won the division. If they want to torture a team in their division and keep them out of the playoffs, God bless them. So I don't hold ill will necessarily towards them doing that. But as a fan, it just developed the hatred. And speaking of hatred... The game that I'm surprised I put this as low as I did, but I think I did because they were down 3-0. Like, they weren't going to really be the first team to come back from 3-0 down. And then obviously they did win the pennant the following year. But that would be game six against the Atlanta Braves in Atlanta. It was the day after or two days after Robin Ventura hit the Grand Slam single. Maybe the greatest game I've ever been to. I'd say pound for pound. Uh considering the magnitude of the game, drama of the game, probably the greatest game I've been to as a Met fan, the Grand Slam single game five against Atlanta, avoiding elimination. But here they are in a game six, trying to become the first team ever to even force a seventh game after being down 3-0. And you're doing it against the Atlanta Braves. And Al Leiter actually was on with Craig and I, coincidentally, days ago. We were talking about pitchers pitching on three days rest. And I mentioned to Al, it jumps out at me that you pitched this game on three days rest. And I love you, Al, but you sucked. You pitched zero innings. There were six base runners. He gave up five runs. It was the worst start of Al's career. And I feel bad saying that because I love Al Leiter. I think he was a great Met. I think he was a clutch Met. But when I think of guys pitching on three days rest, 
That was Al Leiter on three days rest. And Al revealed something that maybe people knew. I either heard it and forgot it or never heard it. And that was the fact that two days earlier, he was warming up to pitch in the Ventura Grand Slam single game. That he was actually going to replace Octavio Dotel out of the bullpen if the game went on further. If it went to his 16th inning, yeah, 16th inning, because it ended in 15. I'm trying to remember. Uh, Al Leiter would have come in and pitched. So maybe it hurt him a little bit that he was warming up to come into a game two days earlier. Either way, Al Leiter couldn't get anybody out. He hits two of the first three batters. He's given up base hits to the point where Bobby V has to save him. And you know who saved his ass and could have gone down as a legend in Met history? Pat Mahomes. Because Pat came into that game, got out of trouble, got a huge double play, and pitched four scoreless innings that day. And he gave the Mets time. Because that's what the Mets needed. They needed time down 5 nothing. And they scored three runs in the sixth inning. And all of a sudden, oh boy, we got a baseball game. But not for long. Because Keith Lockhart, that son of a bitch, rips a two-run single. And now all of a sudden, we're down by four runs again in the seventh inning. And we're dead. It's over. Did the best we could. And then the comeback begins against that overrated, horrible announcing, baseball-hating John Smoltz. That side-arming bastard at the time comes in with a four-run lead because Bobby V's, uh, Bobby Cox is like, we got this. Let me go to John Smoltz. And he gives up a double. And then he gives up a double. And then he gives up a hit. And then, in what I still think to this day, is one of the most majestic home runs in Mike Piazza's career. Obviously, for unbaseball-related stuff, for real-world stuff, the post-9-11 home run is number one. But number two, when it comes to baseball, was this one. A two-run game-tying home run after they trailed by four in the seventh and they trailed by five runs in the first inning. They came back and they tied the game. And now I'm thinking, holy God, they could freaking win. And they go ahead in the eighth and then they blow it. And they go ahead in the ninth and they blow it. I think it was the eighth that they blew it. They blew it in a bunch of innings. I know that. That I know. They blew it in the eighth, and they blew it in the tenth. That's when they blew it. They took a lead in the tenth inning of game six on a sacrifice fly by Todd Pratt. But they all blew it. John Franco blew it. Armando Benitez blew it. And by the time Kenny Rogers came into this game in the eleventh inning, we were bound to lose. And obviously... I think what what haunts me about this is he gave up a leadoff double to the late Gerald Williams, and Brett Boone laid down a bunt. So the Braves had the winning run on third with less than two outs, and the batter was Chipper Jones. So naturally, the Mets walked him. And the next batter was Brian Jordan. And naturally, they walked him. Like, I don't have any issue with Bobby Valentine saying, I can't let Chipper Jones beat me. I can't let Brian Jordan beat me. I'm going to go after Andrew Jones. Maybe you go after Jordan. Maybe. And he's tough to double up because of his speed. But the problem is when you walk both of those guys, now there's no margin for error. Now you just have to throw strikes. And Kenny Rogers didn't. And when that game ended, I cried myself to sleep like a baby. 
But I think a part of that, though, Hoff, is that it was still new to us. That was my first postseason. That was your first postseason. I think for a lot of people listening, it was our first postseason. So it's bad, and it was tough, and everything about that game is still memorable all these years later. But I think perspective is they were down 3-0 in the NLCS. They were down 5-0 and 7-3. The fact they were even in position to win that game is actually insane. Well, I, but I just want to touch on something. I think part of the reason why it was so hurtful, besides the fact that I think Ricky Henderson and, was a Bonilla playing card. Yes. Back, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. That, that sucked. <laughs> that too. But this was the, we're very close to getting somewhere. Even though we were down 3-0, we were very close to getting to the promised land, getting to the World Series. And I'm living in a household which, and a family, like my mother's side of the family, all Yankee fans. So all I've seen the past few years is victories and our team is the best. So and I don't want to make it a Met Yankee thing, but it kind of felt that way because it's just constant remind it was a constant reminder of like, oh, that was really cute that the Mets got the playoffs. Let, let the real boys take over. And that kind of sucked. So it was like that's why when 2000 happened, it was like okay, here we go, let's face it off. We finally get to get to you know battle it out, and that backfired. But like first playoff run, and you kind of get like swiped aside. It's embarrassing. It really is. And look, you're right because when we can't get past Atlanta, and now they're in the World Series against the Yankees, and that was Bob Costas's famous line when Andrew Jones walked. He screams, "Bring on the Yankees!" Well, they brought it. <laughs> Anytime you ask for a team, usually it goes bad. Whether it's me as a Net fan chanting, and I didn't chant it, but Net fans did. We want Boston or Yankee fans chanting, we want Houston. You know, usually when you demand something and then you get it, it doesn't work out well. So you're right. The Yankees then spank them. They sweep them. That was the one World Series in my lifetime, even to this day, that I did not watch. I could not bring myself to watching that World Series. I think I turned it on for about five seconds. I think it was game one when Paul O'Neill hit a little CNI single against John Rocker. And so it was like a seven-second clip. I saw it. I said, uh, okay, click, done. I don't need to see anything from this series. Uh, thank God I wasn't on the fan at the time. I wouldn't have been able to do that, but... Uh, as a 16-year-old, I was able to do that. And that was definitely very, very painful. And now I'm sad. After this entire podcast, now uh, the whole point of it was to go down memory lane. Now I'm like, man, I need to take a shower. I need to cleanse myself from all of this. <laughs> Great job. You ruined everyone's Saturday with your tweet, and now you ruined your Sunday night. <laughs> I ruined my Sunday night. I ruined all of your early week. I apologize. I will make it up to you, and I don't know when. Because our next Rico Bronia will be focused on Edwin Diaz and Brandon Nimmo. But we will do a more positive history that podcast. I think we'll go with best wins or best playoff wins. Something to kind of bring the spirit up. But we're all depressed anyway. The Mets won 100 games and got knocked out. The Philadelphia Phillies won the NL pennant. I figured, why not pile on with more negativity? But talk amongst yourselves. And obviously leave a... Uh, Tweets at Evan Roberts WFN or comments in the podcast section on which close to the season was worst for you. Maybe 
it was a, a year we did not put high up on our list. Maybe for you, 2016 was the worst. Or maybe 2007 or 2008 was the worst. But either way, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that we inflicted all this damage and pain on you on this very sad edition of Rico Bronia. But what can before, I do? I'm sorry. Before we... <laughs> Before we let before we go, because yes. it's a neg- very negative. <laughs> this is a negative one. <laughs> so, I had a very negative thought today after seeing the Phillies uh, win the pennant. Yes, Phillies win the World Series this year, right? So that means we've had the Nationals what in twenty nineteen, yep. Braves twenty twenty one, Phillies twenty twenty two. Yeah, the Marlins just said goodbye to Don Manley, who is king of. When I leave a team, they win a World Series. <laughs> Marlins 2023? How do you feel about that? Uh, God. I don't know if we should have division pride about this. We should say, hey, look, see, we are in a really good division. Look how tough the NL East is. Basically, the Houston Astros have set up the National League East Invitational over the last bunch of years, <laughs> though they seem to lose to these National League East teams. Uh, it sucks, man, because... A part of why this whole thing sucks is I love baseball and I would watch the World Series and I'm going to watch the World Series. I'm not saying I'm not, but having a team I despise in it is not ideal. I prefer having a sit back, relax. I just want to be entertained. Like in 2011, when the Texas Rangers played the St. Louis Cardinals in that classic seven game World Series, my hatred for the Cardinals wasn't as deep as it is now. I probably should have hated them back then after 2006, but they were just, you know, a National League team I respect. It is what it is. And I loved watching that World Series because I didn't have any stress. I just sat back and was like, yeah, whatever happens. Oh, Nelson Cruz can't catch a fly ball on right field. Uh, it happens. Josh Hamilton hit a game-winning home run. Oh, wait, no, he didn't. Ah, it happens. And so when it does involve a team I really, really hate, I can't sit back as a baseball fan and just relax. I have to actively root against Bryce Harper and Reese Hoskins, and JT Realmuto, and Kyle Schwarber, who we should have signed, and Zach Wheeler, who we really should have signed. That was the lasting gift from Jeff Wilpon. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate that. So, yeah. Boy, I, I thought you were going to say something to lighten it up. Instead, it's just more depressing now. <laughs> No, I just, I just pound. Listen, this was this was a crappy episode. Not, <laughs> not, not in a not in a bad way. Like we did a really, you did a really good job of bringing back some really hellish moments. But if we're gonna go this route, I might as well dive in. You make me feel really crappy. Fair enough. Well, I promise you this: we won't have any more uh, too much depressing Rico Bronias. Maybe the Jacob Degrom farewell Rico Bronias will be depressing. But uh, no, next time coming up in a few days, we'll post it Thursday morning. Brandon Nemo, Edwin Diaz will focus on them, what they've done as Mets, how important it is to resign them, what their market would look like, and how you would replace them if you're unable to do that. We'll do that next time on Rico Bronia. Thank you very much for listening. Pete Hoffman with Tiki and Tierney, 10 a.m. on the fan. Me and Craig, 2 o'clock on the fan. Goodbye, and God bless. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronia podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.